Hello there, welcome to episode 66, the appropriately numbered episode 66 of uh, uh, Right Where You're Sitting Now. I'm Ken, joining me in the uh, the co-pilot seat once again is Mark Satir. How are you, sir? In the sidecar. The sidecar. That's, <laughs> that's, what, I'm, that's what I get reduced to, the sidecar. The sidecar. <laughs> yeah, I imagine you have one of those hats with, you know, exactly. the, with the goggles on. And exactly. The, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, so we are back and we are, t- we are covering a topic. Um, w- w- I guess you could say we've kind of brushed over this topic a little bit with uh, Carl Abramson recently and but generally and we, we've certainly mentioned things like the left-hand path before but we've never really gone in in any depth into it uh, on the show and uh, so we're addressing that today with uh, author Don Webb um, so Mark what, give us a bit of a breakdown of what we're going to be expecting today uh, well well Ken me and Ken we're our sandaled and weary feet have taken us to the ultimate edges of the uh, of the uh, the land of the the dark and mysterious Egyptians, and, uh, and crouching on the the Nile is the guardian of the mysteries, the Sphinx herself, because we are approaching the sanctuary of the god Set, or uh, sometimes referred to as uh, Sutek the Destroyer, even. Got some, yes. So no less, no less than the uh, adversary figure from the uh, uh, Egyptian uh, pantheon there. And yeah, we're going to be talking with Don about his book Overthrowing the Old Gods, which is interesting because it's a it's a different order looking at another order's kind of primary text. So it should be quite interesting to kind of uh, kind of delve yeah. into that. Yeah, adding some refreshing light to it. Also, it's it's worth mentioning this is the sixty sixth episode, and if you if you're so minded, you, if you uh, add all the numbers from 1 to 11, they add to 66, and so it's, a, it's often used as a, a, an emblem of magic, there you uh, go. which is something which, uh, funny enough, is, is touched on in, uh, in that, uh, at least the, the number 11 and its relationship to the letter K and so forth. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, all the best people start with the letter K, let's be honest about it. Anyway, let's, uh, let's cut over to Don, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Don Webb, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a long time coming. And um, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Sure, no problem. Um, I uh, was born in 1960 on Walpurgis but uh, more to the point now, um, I am a fiction writer. I do horror fiction, uh, science fiction. I've been doing that since um, about 1989. Uh, I also uh, write books about um, occultism. I have written about the Greek magical pyri. Uh, I've written the, the book tonight we want to talk about, which is a book about Crowley. And I've written several books on a uh, phenomena called the left-hand path. Now, I found my way to the left-hand path in a um, sort of odd roundabout way. I had in my late 20s decided I was not going to practice any form of occultism anymore. Because literally everyone I met was in some way um, pretty mentally deficient. 
and, and buying a cult book at a bookstore, of course, this is before Amazon and, and anonymous books, um, is more embarrassing than buying pornography. So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to put this stuff aside. I actually went out at this ceremony and, and said to the universe, look, if you, if you want me, you got to send me a better teacher. This stuff is you know, awful. And then for a couple of years, didn't, didn't do this at all. And one night, um, I had been researching the Salem witch trials, and I made a little chart of how the uh, thinking in Salem went really bad. I was very happy with my little chart and decided it was good for the evening and turned on the TV. And there was the Geraldo Rivera special on Satanism in America. And I started watching it, and I was, oh, my God, it's exactly the same level of stupidity we had almost 300 years ago. Human beings are just not getting better. And at the, toward the very end of the show, um, one of the occult investigators said, I have files on all these evil Satanists in America. And this really odd-looking guy said, well, why don't you arrest them if this is all true? And immediately, Geraldo cut this guy's mic. In fact, I could hear the mic being cut on the set. And it was a guy named uh, Michael Aquino. Well, I happened later that night to go out with some friends. And I said, you know, I've never sent fan mail to anybody on TV in my entire life. But if I could send this guy fan mail, I would send him fan mail for making Geraldo Rivera shut up. I am so impressed. And one of my friends gave me a strong kind of odd look, and, on, and said, hey, I need you to drive me home. I said, okay, I'm just driving her home. And she said, so, you want to send a letter to Dr. Aquino? Well, I noticed immediately she had said doctor, which had not been you know, in the TV show. And I said, yes. She said, well, I'm seeing him next week. If you write it and drop it off by my house, I'll take it. And suddenly I looked at this woman and her husband, Dr. Stephen Flowers, who is my primary initiator, who had never mentioned their occult connections, didn't walk around wearing so much occult jewelry, they looked like a freak, and they were all had real jobs and were really intelligent. So I sent off my letter, got back a letter, began some correspondence, and not only joined, um, seven years later, I was the high priest. Uh, very literally, I had put the task to the universe saying, look, if you want me to do this, send me an unmistakable sign, and it doesn't get more unmistakable than someone sitting in your car offering to carry a letter for you. Uh, during my time as high priest, I was high priest for six years. I was glad when someone else could take it over. Unlike most occult fraternities, the temple is set, changes its leadership. It's not like, well, we've got the one guy or the one gal, and you know they'll run it for life. Because it's kind of a pain in the butt to be an administrator. Since then, I've written quite a few books. Uncle Set Knox, The Central Guide to the Left-Hand Path is um, probably my best-selling book, and I still find people, you know, all these years later, well, it's almost, almost 30 years later, that uh, come to me and tell them that was the book that kind of opened their eyes. Um, and since then, I divide my writing time between my fiction and my writing on the occult. It was, uh, I, I, um, I read an interview of you a while ago, and it was, wasn't it you were playing Dungeons and Dragons with uh, people that... Um... I, I, I was, actually. It was a role-playing game. You know, at the time, of course, the joke was that role-playing games led you to Satanism, <laughs> which in, in my case is absolutely true, but I think I'm probably the one person that found that rather odd path. Um, not that I would call the temple set Satanism anymore. Um, 
during the height of the satanic panic, when people were yelling about the dangers of Satanists and pointing fingers, uh, we responded with, look, yeah, we're here. What's your problem? And then as soon as sort of that pressure went away, we were like, well, we have actually other things to do. Uh, and it doesn't sound nearly as sexy to say, well, we're a bunch of Neoplatonists with uh, an Egyptian metaphor. Wow, that does not sound like recruiting material. Um, but uh, that probably would be a much better explanation of who we are. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that I've, you know, uh, we've discussed this on um, other shows. We've discussed it with Carl Abrahamson, actually, briefly. Um, it feels at the moment like we might be heading into a new satanic panic. Um, uh, we know we've got uh, a lot of movement from some less desirable groups like uh, Order of Nine Angles, etc., um, you know, making mainstream news a lot of the time. And there appears to be, I don't know, it just feels a lot like it did in the 80s <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, the, the the phrase, at least, Satanism and the way it's been bandied around again. Uh, do you, have you noticed this yourself? Or? Oh, no, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, usually in times of political, uh, especially geopolitical stress, uh, human beings look for groups that they can stigmatize. And the uh, groups, particularly like the ONA, uh, who have very little stake in the world, can get immediate press by coming out and saying anything. Uh, and so I think you know, some of those tensions are going to, to reoccur. Uh, there's largely two approaches. There's the approach of what the, the Temple of State uses saying, here's our material, here's what we think, we'll, we'll talk to you. Or you can do the, the approach of being completely uh, underground and silent. Uh, I think there are some groups that may be doing that well, but it's kind of hard to do well in uh, the super media saturated world where we interact with each other through so many forms of electronic media every single hour. Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting um i think a lot of people um seem to think that the temple of set and the church of satan are kind of basically the same thing but that's not the case is it in any way i was wondering could you talk about um the kind of a, the aquino split as a lot of people call it and the um maybe talk about the church of satan because we, we've just done an episode with um carl abrahamson that's we've gone over quite a lot of the church of satan but maybe quickly let's talk about kind of how the temple of set came about um and uh maybe what are the, the distinct differences and what are the distinct well, well first off i want to give you guys props for giving uh carl abrams a chance to speak he's really brilliant um and he understands some of the deeper ideas in the church of satan that a lot of people who buy that label don't um the Church of Satan is not a spiritual development path. The Church of Satan is a path of realizing the hypocrisy of society, making fun of that hypocrisy, and then as you begin to break with the world, you will notice you have some powers and abilities, not particularly great, not superhero stuff, but some powers and abilities that come from just not being hypnotized all the time. And then the Church of Satan makes the very logical assumption that uh, what you should do with those powers is further your power and your pleasure. Perfectly fine. 
you could even call that the imminent version of the left-hand path. The, we get results right here, right now. That's what we're focused on. The Temple of Set is more the transcendental uh, branch of the left-hand path. We think that the purpose of life is, of course, as our satanic forebearers, first off, to break from the, the conditioning of the world, step away from the programming that hits us all the time, and then find out who we are. We think the process of finding out who we are, uh, turning inward, is a key both to powers and maybe to self-deification. Now, in this, we're very neoplatonic. You know, we think, well, if I am an individual, what's the first form of the individual? What is the platonic essence of that? And we think this is the entity that appears various times in human history, uh, usually under, under different names, but most often under the Egyptian name of Set. Uh, we don't worship Set, which makes it a very hard thing for like most pagans to grasp, because you know, I have a pagan friend, and you know they're having some problems. Well, could you pray to Set for me about this? And I said, no, I can't. And what would he do anyway? But I certainly can do my own magic for you. Um, the break between Aquino and LeVay, LeVay... Uh, had seen that the path of the Church of Satan should be increasingly secular, should be more horizontal, should be people that are making a real change in the world, and that the sign of being a priest would be you make a lot of money and give some of it to the church. Aquino was like, well, we can do things for fundraising, but the priesthood is based on an actual experience of this entity, a noetic experience of this form. And Anton was basically, look, that's not anything I've ever talked about, and that's not what any of this is about, and I don't know what the hell you're doing. Um, and then Queen, of course, as always, when you have a schism, it's like, no, this has always been the truth. Uh, I think, to a large extent, that Michael Queen was a very gifted philosopher, and that Satanism gave him a vocabulary and a methodology for waking up. Um, that wasn't as pious as, say, what you might find in a fourth way group where you're doing it because you love God. I think loving the divine is something that happens toward the end of your spiritual journey instead of at the beginning of your spiritual journey. Mm, yes, that's sort of really intriguing. So there's a sort of, uh, I, I, you know, that's, that's never been clear to me before, the difference between the two strands, the one sort of, in sort of, uh, I'm not sure if the word mystical, well, yeah, I don't know what you would, t uh, how you would take that particular term, but I suppose it's a sort of mystical and one more sort of pragmatic or magical, I suppose. Now, it, it so much depends on goals rather than means in um, magical practice, or, well, actually, any kind of practice in the world. Uh, one could say that probably in the practice of plumbing. Um, the tools and the methods may be the same. Um, I could go today and sit in a very right-hand path Buddhist temple that's not far from, from where I'm at and engage in meditation with the monks and use it practically. If you know, any camera will point at me, I'm doing the same things they are. But the goal is different. There's a large, and this, it's a big confusion in the occult world. 
because people will look at these different traditions that, well, they must be the same because they do the same things. You know, the way the mind gets to the place where it can affect itself and consequently reality are the same. There's a lot of different traditions, but it's the reason for the goal that separates groups. Um, so in terms of like, you know, we obviously hear a lot about um, OTO and uh, Golden Dawn practices and what are the kind of, you know, when you become a member of the Temple of Set, what, what you know, what's kind of expected of you? What's your kind of uh, curriculum or, you know, day-to-day -day kind of uh, practice? It's a completely plug-and-play curriculum. Like, you can join the OTO, pull out Liberesh, you've got, oh, I've got to do these four things every day, uh, need to go to a Gnostic Mass occasionally, and I should probably read these books. Uh, the Temple Set assumes that most of your training you probably have already done, that you have tried two or three or four things in the occult world, or 40 things in the occult world, and have begun to discover that reality that you experience is not the reality that the average sleeping human experiences. And then we provide a very simple model of magic and say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Here's our thought and philosophy. What are your questions? And then we usually have a two-year period where we exchange um, all sorts of uh, communications about people trying to get their lives together and what we think and do. And if it's a good fit, people can stay. If it's a bad fit, um, people go on. And there's no shame, obviously, in going on. We see ourselves as a school rather than a, rather than a movement. Um, there are very few standard um, setting practices. Probably the, the closest that comes is there is an invocation of set that is used pretty often uh, that Michael Aquino had written back in 75, um, just because it's poetic and it also lays out a lot of principles in a really comprehensible way, both to the rational mind and to the part of your mind that is beyond reason, to the supra-rational mind, we might say. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, glancing again, looking again, actually, returning to uh, your very um, scholarly, uh, scholarly and engagingly scholarly, actually, um, book, Mister Mister Webb, the uh, Seven Faces of Darkness, and that draws a lot on the 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 sort of history, the the um, iconography history, the mythology of the set figure and I and I and I and I assumed I assumed that part of engagement with the Templar set would be like developing a, a relationship in some sense with that archetype or that having a comprehensive understanding of what it means, at least means means to the individual. Well the, the interesting thing is that yes we do we do expect that at a certain level of development if you are called to this. The um, uh, first level of the temple set, the level of setian is you are an interested scholar. The second level, being an adept, means you have certain skill in magic and you're willing to accept as a working model of the universe um, the temple's model. There is a third level beyond that where you uh, need to show that you have personal interactions um, with the set entity. We do actually see our priesthood as being... Um, sacred to and chosen to a certain extent by Seth. 
Um, and this is a matter that is, you can't give um, simple guidelines. It's not like, well, one day you'll have a dream, and in a dream you'll see a black pearl. And that means, no. It means that certain changes happen in the way you perceive yourself, the cosmos, particularly the way you perceive the flow of time that not only you can experience, but other people who have been through the process can experience. And from that, we have a, a priesthood, which has further levels of development. We are um, a child intellectually of the systems of the Golden Dawn or the OTO, although we, uh, since we're not based on the Kabbalah, we don't have a 10 degree system um, and we are less emphatic about what each degree should master, uh, largely because, and, and this is what's always confused me in some ways about the OTO, is I don't, the, the Kabbalah is a wonderful and beautiful system if, in fact, you um, worship and understand the Hebrew God as the, the you know, fundamental principle of the universe. If you begin by rejecting that, the Kabbalah seems like just rather, a rather pointless um, code game, and you could probably find code games that are more fun. You could find code games in Lovecraft, or you could find code games in Herbert's Dune series or something, or make up your own that are just as valid as the Kabbalah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you were talking earlier, and I've heard you speak about this before, about the, the, the way you observe time. Um, when you're a member of the Templar set, and that that seems pretty interesting. Could you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Well, one of the greatest uh, things that human beings did for themselves, or did to themselves, depending on your um, orientation, with the coming of the Industrial Revolution, we began to fetishize time as an objective reality. Because you got to, right? If you're going to have uh, your factory workers start at 7.35 in the morning. You need them in the plant at 7.30. And you need them in the plant at 7.30 every day. Uh, you began to think of time in a completely Newtonian fashion. You know, Newton gave us time as the one invariant in his system. Time is always going to be the same. Um, turns out Newton was wrong. Uh, also, you will discover that not everything flows with the same kind of causality all of the time, uh, at least in terms of subjective experience. Now, all humans know this to some extent, right? It's uh, 10 minutes on the, your chair at the dentist may seem to last for hours, whereas an entire night with your lover may seem to be over in just a blink of the eye. We know that there's a relationship between emotion and duration but the really fundamental breakthrough would be this. If I'm going to leave this slightly obese body that's talking to you uh, through um, all the airwaves right now, and I'm going into a world of my own creation, duration is the key, not objective time. Or if I'm going to say that I am affecting things magically, that I can do something in my chamber and it causes another human being somewhere on the planet to do something else, which would mean all kinds of like super liminal speeds of information, then I'd have to say, look, that's, that's not linear time. I, as a spiritual being, am free from linear time. 
And after enough years of keeping that as an intellectual idea and as a practical idea for occult work, it slowly seeps into your being. And there's this moment where, hmm, I am living in at least a slightly different universe than all the humans around me. I wonder what else might be here where I am. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, we were talking about um, rituals earlier on, and one that popped up when I was doing some research was there was a Cthulhu ritual. Um, uh, and also there's a connection with this Cthulhu ritual and Kenneth Grant's uh, a, a kind of H.P. Lovecraft crossover period where it seemed to be uh, Lovecraft's um, work was being kind of uh, incorporated into magical work. Uh, I think it was 1972. Um yeah, in 72, we had this, this, this interesting moment. And the interesting moment was um, it, it began on, on uh, the, the Church of Satan side for, for reasons that are extraordinarily prosaic, but then went somewhere else. Um, Anton LaVey had a two-book deal with Avon Books. And Anton uh, was never a writer. This was not his great goal in life. He usually got... Uh, his girlfriends, uh, partners at the time, through the typing and so forth. After writing the Satanic Bible, which is a really short book, a lot of white space in that book, uh, he was in, uh, Avon said, hey, this was a bestseller. We, we weren't expecting it to be. We want another book for you, and we'll send you know, a quick sign, and we'll send you in advance. And like all of us in the writing field did that, didn't wonder what the hell he was going to do. Uh, when he came up with his first uh, draft of rituals, I sent it back to Avon. I said, this is way too short. You've got to find some more stuff here. And about that time, um, Michael Aquino was passing from the third degree to the fourth degree in the Church of Satan. And Anton said, you need to have a masterwork that shows you're a master of the grotto, a magister Kawerni. And he said, what would that be? And he said, well, you need some kind of work uh, why don't you write something about Lovecraft? Uh, largely because Anton was a huge collector of weird tales and unknown magazine, had a complete press run of weird tales um, down in his little basement. And so Aquino put together this very strange mixture of Lovecraftian gods and Greek arithmosophy. Uh, which was probably even more obscure to the world at that point than, than Lovecraft. So he came up with this angular system of magic. Um, my uh, good friend and sometime student, uh, Toby Chappell, wrote a really good book on this called Infernal Geometry. Um, and this became initially the Ceremony of the Nine Angles and the Call of Cthulhu. Now, while this was going on, uh, there was a lady named Margaret Wendell who published a uh, a little newsletter in the Church of Satan called The Scroll of the Bast. And she wrote um, to a guy in uh, Chicago who's uh, Michael Bertois and says, hey, we're doing this Lovecraft stuff. And he says, well, I've been thinking of doing Lovecraft stuff. Um, and then he wrote a letter to Kenneth Grant saying, this seems to be where the new Aeon is about to go. And Kenneth Grant, not in a derivative sense, because he did, wasn't working with the same material, uh, came to the same conclusion that these Lovecraftian ideas of great cosmic entities that basically don't give a fuck about people 
that are found in places of extreme strangeness and could bring, if you use some strangeness into your life, which is a questionable thing to do, uh, it was a great idea. So suddenly, 1972, you've got this huge burst, right, that goes off in two places, like two giant fireworks going off. Avon Books brings out the Satanic Rituals, and there at the end, there are two rituals that are completely Lovecraftian, the Call to Cthulhu and the Ceremony of the Nine Angles, and then a ritual based uh, ultimately on the works of uh, Frank Belknap Long called Dialectician Vorspela. Meanwhile, in Britain, Kenneth Grant is producing his occult revival. These two ideas hit the world from two different places at once, and suddenly it's a movement. Um, and then about three years later, uh, the rather sad thing, the uh, Simon Necromonicon came into being trying to uh, capitalize on that movement. Well, that was a rather um, limited piece of imagination in terms of its uh, creation. And, and now it's a completely normalized thing. You'll find it in chaos magic. You'll find it in people that use satanic rituals. You'll find an entire order in the Temple set, who are the trapezoid, that that's a major area that they play with. Um, it was, I think, one of the first times that neo-mythology, that this idea that somebody, some like fantasy or horror writer had an idea, that then became a practice so easily, although that's always been going on in both the English and French and German-speaking worlds, at least. Yeah, I think it's even uh, often overlooked, actually, that there is that sort of very strange bridge between uh, Grant and uh, LeVay, which is H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I'm, I don't remember set featuring particularly in Lovecraft's uh, works, but um, he was, he did know, um, he was in correspondence with uh, Robert E. Howard, and I know Robert E. Howard had a, he had um, invented Conan, the Conan figure in the, his sort of, he had the, in his mythological world, the Stygia, which is a kind of fantasized version of Egypt. And there's a lot about Set and the priests of Set and and uh, that kind of, those kind of themes, certainly in that work. Oh, and so this all then was just was wonderful for the 70s, right? Because in the 70s, we have this huge burst of sword and sorcery novels. And of course, the first one, to do this well, as you pointed out, with my fellow Texan, Robert E. Howard. And this is introduced to, to so many people um, set appeared in these novels, uh, all sorts of things in fantasy. And then there seems to be this kind of awakening um, on a deeper level. This is, this is not an unusual process in the occult. Very often you will see something show up in the most popular genre you could possibly imagine. And you think, oh, that's really shallow. But you'll then discover within a short period of time, the depths related to that shallowness show up. I always think of the human unconsciousness, the collective unconsciousness, I guess say, as a vast, pretty, calm ocean. But occasionally you'll see ripples up at the top. Well, that ripple up at the top means something really big is moving really deeply underneath. And certainly in the 70s and early 80s, um, things associated with uh, Howard Lovecraft uh, certainly began to show up. And we would see it in the most popular forms. Um, you know, there's a Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and so forth. 
But then you would also see people considering it in a really deep way. Uh, what does this mean? What, uh, what does this cosmicism mean? What does it mean to assume that maybe intelligence is something that isn't really happening on this planet? Which, uh, once you have that notion, and then you watch the daily news, you realize that's true. Yeah, I mean, one thing you mentioned earlier as well was the order, order of the trapezoid. Now, there's a Church of Satan version of this. Uh, uh, is there also a Temple of Set version as well, then? There is a Temple of Set version. The, the original version, um, at least according to, to Michael Quina, who was in the Church of Satan at the time, uh, Anton had originally designated that as the people running the show. And he hinted a great deal that there were several very important people who were involved who, for public reasons, couldn't say they were in the Church of Satan, which is a great piece of propaganda, right? It's like, well, we have really powerful members, but we can't tell you their names. Uh, the American, the American Rosicrucians have done that for, for years, right? Uh, the Temple Set version uh, was founded in 19... You see, 1983, Michael Aquino had founded that. And it's, uh, for us, it's a knighthood. And it's a knighthood where people basically say, I am going to find a unfulfillable life quest and continue on it. And it's a way to not become uh, lazy or too content. Because if you pick a truly unfulfillable quest, you can't fulfill it. But you can work really hard. Now, uh, Michael Aquino was the first Grandmaster of the Order of the Trapezoid in the Temple Set. The second one was Stephen Flowers. And Flowers had the completely unfulfillable quest of finding out everything about the idea of runa, the idea of secrecy in human society, particularly in Indo-European societies, mainly Germanic, although he's also written about Celtic and lately a lot about Persian societies. He'll never be able to fulfill his task, but he will always have a task to do. And I think he's doing pretty well. I mean, I've got, what, five books? He has 40. Uh, pretty much uh, flowers is the winner there in the uh, library filling um, aspect of occultism. <laughs> yeah, he certainly put a fair few out, hasn't he? I mean, I, I, I was in uh, Watkins Books in London a couple of weeks ago, and I was staggered actually by the amount of uh, flowers books that were were in the actual in the store. Uh, Edward has the uh, the unique ability to see the relationship, and this also Carl uh, has this too. But Edward has the unique ability to see the relationship between a cult movement and philosophical or political stances. Now, mainly in, uh, at least in the American occult world, we can't, people tend to be intellectually, have the smallest groups possible. Uh, the occult's a diversion. It's, it's, a, it's a hobby, right? It's up there with, you know, growing marigolds or something. Um, but the, our ancestors' ancestors understood that if you're going to get to the nature of reality, you also have an obligation to yourself and others based on what you find there. Um, and that obligation may radically change your life. Uh, certainly with me, when I, when I joined the Temple of Set, I was not thinking this is going to be a lifetime endeavor. 
uh, you know, horror writer here in Austin. I thought, wow, this is this would be really good for my street cred. I will spend some time in a secret organization like uh, Arthur did in, in the Golden Dawn. Uh, and instead, it became a lifetime obligation because as I discovered, mainly within myself, certain principles, I then wanted to find more. Um, so you know, the order of the trapezoid remains for us a knighthood based on the idea you have to go out, you have to find things, you can never find everything you want, and you have to share what you find. So in some ways, not unlike the Seekers after the Grail, although um, with less of a sort of pious uh, metaphor or methodology. Interesting. Okay, so one thing we've um, we've sort of spoken about it a lot in the past on the show and with, even today in this conversation, but a lot of people, and I think maybe it's because there's, there's so many definitions of the word, could you give us at least a bit of a kind of history of what the word the phrase rather the the left hand path actually means uh absolutely and uh and, and to some extent only recently has it begun to be defined uh the british novelist bulverlin uh wanted a phrase in one of his novels to describe an evil magician he had a magician that was 500 years old and he was evil because he did not interact with the world. Uh, I believe his uh, particular gesh was to never cry. So, Bulver Lytton, who was very aware of Indian spiritual techniques uh, that were just beginning to be published in the English-speaking world, chose the phrase that will show up in all of the various religions that we gloss over with the word Hindu, Vama Marg the path to the left, or equally good uh, translation, the path of the woman, that involved um, sex or involved dealing with substances that were impure or involved dealing with taboo. The probably most spectacular example of a Bama Marg sect in India would be the Aghori, uh, particularly the unreformed Aghori, who you'll occasionally see in some picture book of a naked guy covering ashes at a um, at a cremation ground, uh, drinking from a skull. That's your kind of basic Indian left-hand path there. Now, obviously, we aren't that those guys. Um, I'm, I'm almost never naked covering ashes. Can't, can't really think of a time that I was. But the, uh, but the, the skull comes in handy now and again. The like, skull comes in handy. There, there are there. Are, I think skulls are, are a great symbol for you know, reminding you of your mortality. But the left-hand path in uh, the English-speaking world went through some really interesting changes. Originally, uh, Blavatsky picked up the word and used it to describe everybody she hated. She was good, which was right-hand path, and all those other people were left-hand path. Cool. No one knew exactly what it meant. No one went and looked at what it meant in its original Sanskrit. Uh, Crowley did the same thing. I mean, here's this man that's completely outrageous and did a lot of things that were um, in terribly offensive to his society, from sex to drugs to a lot of other things. But he still used the term left-hand path that people didn't like. You know, when Austin Osmond Spare decided that he wasn't going to have sex with him, 
Crowley immediately wrote this thing denouncing Spare as a brother of the left-hand half. Um, then Anton LaVey came along, and this moment of total, absolute brilliance. He said, hey, this thing you guys all hate and you're scared of, that's us. You're scared of us. We're the people you're scared of. And if you send me some money and really work hard, I'll teach you to be scary. Wow. That appeals to anybody, particularly adolescents, but it appeals to any human when they're like, I am tired of society. Now, the principles that have arisen in the left-hand path in the West turn out, shockingly, at least shocking to me, to be exactly the same as the principles of the left-hand path in India, even though there wasn't some moment where some agori scholar came forward and said, hey, this is how you do this. Here are the basic principles. Number one, you have to make a break with your society through taboo action. You don't go to church. You have sex in a way that you're not supposed to have sex. You uh, eat substances you're not supposed to eat. Now, obviously, that's very specific to people's culture. Um, a young Jewish man might find his first act of rebellion to eat a ham and cheese sandwich, whereas that's not going to affect his uh, Christian neighbor. The second principle is that most left-hand path groups, both historical ones, such as the Fraternitas Saturni, and modern ones like the Temple of Sed or the Dragon Rouge, uh, have a technology that empowers the its adherents to do things beyond what's considered normal. There has to be the practice of the occult. Now, the occult, I, don't, I mean, that not just as magic. It's magic seen as transgressive. Magic's a lot less transgressive in English-speaking society now than it was 50 years ago. Um, you know, we'll see the crystal shops or the herb shops or whatever. I mean, there seems to be kind of a folk magic that seems alive and well and healthy, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, the third thing is you have to have a sense of the immortality or potential immortality of the self. You know, that, that you're not an illusion. You're not, um, the fact I think I exist is not uh, a yet another lie that was told me. I really do exist. And the fourth part is you then have to have self-deification. Now, that does not mean that you're going to surround yourself with mirrors and walk around all day and say, oh, look at me, I'm a god. No, blah, wrong. It means that you will believe that any miracle that has to happen in the world, any change you want to bring about that is beyond uh, cause and effect, you've got to be responsible for it. You have to find that in yourself. You have to develop the strengths of mind, the strengths of will, the notions of uh, arcane wisdom of how did this to happen. Now, this is a huge break from Judeo-Christian thinking. Uh, number one, Judeo-Christian thinking says there are a lot of taboos we should have that we have just in honor of God. Now, I grew up in Texas, and in Texas, there are any number of hardline Christian groups that will tell you, you will go to, you know, you'll go to hell if you play cards or if you dance. Uh, like we ever see like the dirty dancing, you know, movie. No, that's a that's a real thing here. Those are taboos you should break. Um, 
And when you break them and realize a lightning bolt is going to come crashing into your room at that moment, suddenly you begin to realize there's not a cosmic watchdog that's deeply offended by things you do. It is very contrary to Judeo-Christian thinking to assume there is magic. Uh, Judeo-Christians can think, well, there's angelic magic or prayer. That, that's not magic. I pray and it happens, but God does it. They're saying you do it yourself. That's a very radical thing. And it's a humbling thing because most of your magic doesn't work, right? You don't look at uh, successful magicians and say, wow, you guys all won the lottery. Uh, hopefully you should say you guys are having better lives. And if you look at any occult group and the leaders are not having at least the life they want to have, don't, don't join the group, right? It's a simple, pragmatic test. Um, the notion that you have an immortal soul, we do share that with the Christians. Um, we view it as a, like a point of view. We take, you know, so we take you know, Socrates' argument for the immortality of the soul. Well, we, we go along the same way. We think that that's absolutely correct. And then finally, that idea that I must increase myself for the sake of my own power, for the sake of my own enlightenment, for the sake of my own pleasure, and for the sake of what I can do for my friends, family, and world, is a very left-hand path point of view. Now, consequent, currently we're going through this phase where left-hand path is a popular term, similar to, uh, let's say, 20, 25 years ago, when chaos magic was a popular term. And you had very smart people practicing it, and you had a lot of people who had no clue, but they liked to say it. And they could sell their own little book or newsletter or whatever about it. We're sort of having a weird left-hand path um, boom right now, and that, will, that too will eventually go away. And then only the more serious practitioners will remain as they always have. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to reflect about the taboo breaking aspect of the sort of the ethos of the left hand path. I mean, uh, I mean, my understanding, my understanding of Buddhism is very limited, but I, I understand that uh, yeah, there's a, in some versions of Buddhism, especially probably uh, um, my understanding is uh, more westernized sort of perspectives is that they 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 practice a thing called um, therapeutic blasphemy where they they rile against the um, if they were brought up not even if they were brought up as a christian but they want to break away from that sort of mindset and um, and see there you have this this wonderful moment this goes back to the whole um question of goals versus means any movement toward enlightenment whether it's the self deification of the left-hand path, or you know, the Buddhist idea that you eventually realize you don't have a permanent self, any movement toward enlightenment begins with, I'm going to break with society. I'm going to break with the messages I see constantly, and I hear constantly. And one of the best ways to do it, first off, is not just to break with uh, those things you don't like, but then think about things you have always considered, um, whatever your own sacred cows are, and see what happens if just just in a playful way, you reject that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, by the same, if you apply the same consistent reasoning to the, uh, the, the someone converting to Buddhism and a step away from Christianity as this sort of um, intentional um, 
therapeutic blasphemy, as it's called. I mean, that would be equally true for somebody who was brought up as a, in a Buddhist or in a Buddhist part of the world and converted to Christianity. They would have to do it the other way around. Or it would apply to other ideologies like political ideologies and and so on. And and curiously enough, actually, if there lots of those, you know, whistling on a Sabbath is, you know, being sort of forbidden. And, uh, you know, the, in, mon in certain monasteries, they had like uh, old lists of rules. For example, um, I was reading one not that long ago about uh, it was forbidden to uh, throw snowballs, um, ride a horse, um, to swim, and uh, and a whole load of rafter stuff, which 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 has nothing to do with Christianity. Whatever they're preaching, whatever this uh, worldview they're, they're presenting, is not Christianity. And uh, and I think for some people, historically, breaking from the the uh, the uh, groupthink, the mind of society, was um, to actually go dig deep into the uh, in, back into the sort of heart of Christianity strangely enough like a Blake or reinvent it renew it like a Blake or, or St. Francis of Assisi for example he, he he you know he 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 was a Christian but he there wasn't anyone exactly like him as a Christian he sort of renewed it in a you know he took his own path well I mean ultimately regardless of where you fall on the spiritual spectrum you can take this basic word we use, religion, you know, nice Latin roots, religio, to tie back. Well, what are you tying back to? You're tying back to a source, and that doesn't mean I'm going to take the things my minister said or the last book I read said. I have to find what the source is and tie myself to it. I have to find where things come from. And so you do have these... Um, in, in, in any faith or any philosophy or any, any political group, you'll have these people that come along and say, hey, uh, we need to look at our roots. And what they do seems really strange. But, you know, again, in just following English etymology, the word radical means going back to roots, you know, from Latin radix. So, you know, we have these kind of radicals from time to time in any group. Uh, that come in, that change, that innovate. Uh, I would say in the left-hand path, we assume that everyone must find their own path toward a certain radicalism. They have to find out the roots of their very selves, which is why it will tend to be a much smaller movement uh, in the right-hand path, who suggests that the roots are probably well-known and probably someplace in a tradition you can work with. Um, although, of course, the innovators are occasionally welcome. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, it might be worth quickly as well, just sort of defining what the right-hand path is so we can, because uh, I think that will help us move into talking about your book a little bit as well, because there are, I mean, the book of the law certainly seems to cross across right and left-hand paths if we take your what you said before into account. So could we very quickly touch on what you consider the right-hand path to be. Just as the left-hand path is the path of isolation, the breaking away of the universe, the right-hand path is the path of union, of taking the self and making it ultimately harmonious with either something much bigger in the form of God or in the form of nature, in the form of the Tao, so that one has a joyous, almost ecstatic erasure of self. One becomes a selfless being. Uh, 
as a consequence, the right-hand path, um, and, and most humans are on, on any path. Most people, humans have really no ideas because they don't have enough time in their lives to think of spiritualism or philosophy or you know anything. But the consequence, the right-hand path, is often used by political groups that want to be oppressive. Um, let's look at traditional Leninist communism, right? Uh, you would not think, first of all, you would think, well, that's not a spiritual path. Yeah, of course it is, because the average person is supposed to ultimately erase himself for the common good, which is the will of the worker. You know, so you're giving yourself to this greater thing. Now, in practice, this really sort of beautiful idea comes down to the people who are then uh, saying what the will of the workers are, are doing pretty well, and the rest of the people aren't doing so well. In America, where we have not only capitalism, but turbo capitalism, uh, people say, well, I do everything I can for the economy, which is even a scarier idea than the state. Uh, and then they see you know, various injustices, but they accept it because they're told somehow this makes everything work better. We're having this really funny moment in America right now. Um, last quarter, the last um, three months, oil companies in America made record profits. They're making more money on gasoline here than they have ever made. The moment the idea came that we're shutting off Russian oil, which is not that big a part of what Americans consume, suddenly prices almost doubled. So the, these people that were making 50% profits, which is an amazing amount, are suddenly making 80% profits, even though they're paying more. And all Americans are like, somehow we're helping the Ukraine. You know, you're, you're helping the oil companies, and the Ukraine absolutely needs your help. I mean, that's a totally wonderful and noble cause, but people are willing to sacrifice themselves for this. So like, the right-hand path is a path of sacrifice and union, either in its most noble forms, you might think of like Trappist monks or something, or in its least noble forms. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so where does Alistair Crowley lie when it comes to the Temple of Set? Like, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the TOS's kind of um, take on Crowley and Thelema? Uh, Thelema, the idea of you finding your true will, is an absolutely, completely resonant notion throughout the Temple Set, and we think of Crowley as a forebearer. The mechanisms of Thelema, which are um, ritual magic, drug use, sex magic, we reject drug use because we don't think that brings reliable information. Uh, we don't think that you know, what you, you, know, you eat a cactus or something and see something we don't think that's necessarily a spiritual truth. We think that's more of a chemical reaction. Uh, the ritual magic we like, um, sex magic is very personal. You can't define sex magic for people uh, because people have to find their own sexuality as long as well as everything else in this world. Um, Crowley, in his writings, wavered between the notion that the self is real and permanent and should be empowered, and that the self is in some way an illusion. And his own place that this was toughest for him to figure out 
was the gap he saw from his adept grades up to the master of the temple. He wanted to see the master of the temple as someone who was essentially selfless. Yet if we look at Crowley's life, he's not living like a monk giving all his things away uh, at, at any point after taking the, the grade of master of the temple. Um, he's still not above you know, taking money from followers, uh, getting in the pants of every man and woman that he meets, uh, consuming you know, drugs whenever he can. Um, so I think what Crowley was trying to say, and what I argue in the book is, he talks about giving up the temporary self, the self that is the product of society, our social selves. And I think that, you know, and I, several people in Temple agree with me. Now, of course, the biggest problem in talking to someone like me the temple set doesn't have dogma. So you think, oh, here's this guy. He used to be high priest. He's well thought of there. What he's putting out is dogma. At best, I'm putting out stuff that a lot of people think. Uh, and I could easily just have someone say, no, you're wrong. I don't think that. Okay, cool. That does not affect your standing. Um, Crowley is essential, not just for setting thinking, but for understanding any change in the occult world in the English-speaking occult world, anyway, after the 1970s. Because the force of his philosophy, which is much more coherent than almost any writer of the occult, has seeped into everyone's thinking. Uh, I mean, as a consequence, he's actually worthwhile studying as a worldly philosopher, although I doubt we'll be seeing much of that in college campuses, at least for a couple of decades. Yeah, that would be something, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, just so, so stepping back there on the the issue of the the sort of magical perspective on the self, for what it's worth, I always my tendency is always to think of the self as uh, like a, a, basically a tool, a tool like the hand, and the the ego uh, or the persona as being like the thumb. If you if you if you just if you just tried to go through life using your thumb. And nothing else you wouldn't get very much done i mean the thumb's amazing thing it's uh, we, the fact we got prehensile thumbs is why our ancestors could use tools and so you know when the thumb is employed with the rest of the fingers in the rest of the parts of the self that's that's when it's the, the really the most effective and and uh, i suppose the the extreme forms of um uh, paths or which claim to completely negate the self or are ones which have chopped the thumb off mm -hmm. and, and i suppose the other one is a bit like um uh stepping back from the the ego because you know in sort of these classical psychological terms the ego and the self is not the same persona in jungianism in jungianism is not the same it's the i mean persona means mask so um or like an actor on the stage you know it's a bit like an actor is on the stage playing a role but they're actually at some point they've forgotten they're actually they're in a play and, and they're and they're, re and they're reading somebody else's script and uh, they're not necessarily playing you know the duke of burgundy or whoever it might happen to be well, and, and even taking that metaphor, just stretching that a bit, they often may find themselves in roles they should have never taken. Yeah. Uh, because cast. it's not, yeah. you know, they don't have the, the authenticity in that role. Yeah. Um, but of course, then that begins to get into the inequality of human beings, which is a, a frightening concept. Um, but we're all not going to be um, Hamlet. 
uh, who himself, of course, obviously has some problems finding himself. You know, but we can at least hope that we're not starring in Sharknado. Yeah, like uh, like Oscar Wilde said, all the world is a stage, but sometimes it's very badly cast. But yeah, the, the, Wilde is so wonderful. He's a perfect example, right? Because he, because since he is an outsider, uh, a double outsider in uh, in English society, first you know because he's gay, and secondly because he's Irish. Um, then he could see things really clearly. I mean, the, the one uh, great benefit of breaking from society is you can see things really clearly. However, the great and most painful thing of breaking with society is that you can see things really clearly. You're like, oh man, I'm watching a train wreck here. I wish I couldn't understand this now. Yeah, I was, I was pleasantly surprised to hear these you um, sort of praise Crowley. Uh, often when you hear interviews of you know um you know satanists or left-hand path um practitioners they tend to sort of uh poo-poo crowley quite a lot um almost it's almost like a badge of honor in a way <laughs> they they tend to uh you know it's it's almost um it feels almost like they're sort of dog whistling in, in a sense like like crowley's a bit of a dirty word um why do you think that is it, it doesn't seem to be with temple of set but it is with um for example ona and um uh who else did i see i i saw another interview recently with another left-hand path group and again crowley was like a dirty word there why do you think that is well i i'm i got a strong opinion on that one of the things that um anton Le anton LeVay did when he uh wrote the satanic bible and and the majority of the mystic stuff he wrote in uh, the clothing book newsletter is he would often, uh, and, and this is a standard thing in the occult, he did not start this, he was by no means the only person, is he either claimed to have invented everything, I invented this thing, this is mine, or he made fun of the people who in fact he was ripping off. So if you read um, the Satanic Bible, there's a whole section on how to do magic. It is in fact a very pragmatic, let's get rid of um, the stuff we don't need version of Crowley's book, Magic, step by step. It's really clear that he had that open when he was writing it, or more likely when Diane Haggerty was typing it. Um, and then he just said, well, Crowley, you know, he was either a drug addict, and um, Anton was very uncomfortable around homosexuals, although he was a great believer in, you know, sexual freedom as an idea. And so then Crowley becomes an easy whipping dog. Don't go look at that guy. He's awful. All he did was he showed it's important to be wicked. You get press. Well, Anton did that part well. And then a lot of people, you know, continue to repeat this. For example, one of the things that Anton LaVey railed against during most of his life was Wicca. Oh, these people, they're, they're taking the de they're playing the net devil's game, but they're not taking the devil's name. We hate them. As opposed to saying, maybe we should form some alliance here against, you know, the forces of society. And then you'll have any number of people who, who you know, read the Satanic Bible and whose thoughts have not really gone anywhere because they're thinking Anton's thoughts. will say how awful Wiccans are. Oh, they're all fluffy bunnies. Really? Man, I've seen some of those women be incredibly politically organized and get real change in the world. You know, and you're living in your dad's basement. But 
that's an unfortunate thing. You know, since we are a sub, you know, a subculture, we tend to treat other similar subcultures as, wow, maybe there's something wrong with them. Um, it's a childish thing. We may outgrow it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's sort of self-evident, really, that Crowley's important. I mean, we, you know, I think not barely a show of this episode you know an episode rather of this show goes past without him coming up and you know he's you can find his books quite freely you know well you can these days um and you know he's you know he's 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 an incredibly quoted person so that he obviously did something right that's kind of always been my uh my take on it you know people, yeah i mean people are quoting really even when they don't realize they're doing it it's his influence is so uh ubiquitous but i think that's i think for people who resonate with crowley's work and ideas and uh find it a useful or an engaging path that's you know that's one thing i think also i think they go they tend to have one kind of relationship with him but uh, I think if you want to, uh, if you want to follow a path of some sort, he, I suppose for some people he is like an obstacle on that path because it's like this huge beast, uh, pun intended, is uh, sort of you know in a way in the way because how do you then get round it? You can't go over the mountain; you have to go around the mountain. But in a way, you, you, what you need to do really is just like acknowledge his influence and then um, and build on that i would have thought but uh, who who am i to say well there's i mean there's, there's a major problem and you're, you're I, I think you're quite correct which is people have a lot of problems with limits you know so if like I'm, if i'm going to pick up this book and read it i have to know some limits about what do i think who am i what you can you can question all the time you can check your limits but there are people who when they find any thinker that begins to open the, a universe for them, there's that tendency to think, well, this, this is the guy or the gal. I'm going to do everything based on that. So you'll, you'll find people who, um, in the, the satanic milieu who have read uh, the satanic Bible, who then shave their head and try to look like Anton. Man, this is just it's sad. Or you can find, uh, I've, I've known Gurdjieffians, right, who, who shave their head and try to have like an accent when they're talking. I'm like, dude, you're, you're, you're from America. Why, why are you trying to sound like you're Russian? And besides he was a Georgian. Um, or, you know, again with Crowley, you don't have to do what the guru taught. You have to understand what the guru taught in context. You're not going to get any closer to your true will by shooting up heroin. You're just going to get a heroin addiction. Yeah, that's true. So, um, what kind of what was the kind of uh, the uh, the inspiration? What 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 kind of uh, what made you want to write a book like um, like this one, uh, overthrowing the old gods? Well, it, it began um, initially. I, I, in fact, I wasn't that that interested in in Crowley at first. Uh, but around 2004, 2005, about 100 years after the reception of the Book of the Law, there was um, just a lot of chatter about that on uh, Setian email lists. People were talking about these things. And um, I, I began to respond to some of the things, uh, and this is basically the, the last section of the book, The Fire and the Horse, is where this comes from. 
uh, where the kids weren't went to, I started writing really short essays. And initially, I just said, okay, I'm going to write 11 essays. Because, of course, according to Crowley, 11 is the number of magic, it's the number of change, you know, so letter K um, has all these, you know, wonderful properties for him. And that didn't say enough. And I said, okay, so I've written 11, which corresponds to fire. I'm going to write 20 more essays corresponding to force because he decided that his formula was fire and force. Um, and so I wrote 20 more essays. And I sent those kind of out in the world. And then I discovered that people had copied them and shared them in other forums. And I was seeing them quoted. And I thought, hmm, there's some real interest here. Uh, I should probably maybe write another book. And then before I did this, I've been read and read and read and read more and talked to a lot of practitioners of various um, branches of Thelema and said, I think this would be a legitimate um, book. And so I wanted to do this in a most the most um, taboo-breaking way I could that wouldn't get my, you know, my head shot. Um, so I decided I would do a commentary on the Book of the Law because that is forbidden. That is expressly forbidden. So, okay, I'm going to do that. Now, years before, uh, Dr. Quino had written his own commentary. And uh, for, for many years, his belief was is that writing should not be shared with the great unwashed. You should share your writings with just initiates. And, and he and I had a significant disagreement on that over the years. I said, look, the reason people say the Temple of Set does all these weird, crazy things is because there's literally nothing they can go to the library and read about. I said, you know, we can just say, here's what we do. If you like it, here's our address, right? So I had begun writing uh, books for the public, like Uncle Set Knox's Essential Guide. And as I was writing this, I wrote him saying, hey, can I quote from your commentary on the Book of Law? And to my utter surprise, he said, you could publish it if you wanted. And so, all oh, that gave the book a really odd shape because it's my commentary than his commentary. Uh, I thought that's amazing. That's going to actually show that people can have ideas and thought about the book of the law and not be part of the OTO or an AA lineage or the Trinitas Saturni or some new OTO uh, would be group. Yeah, and it's very refreshing actually seeing a different perspective on the on that material, like that core material. And and, and much to my surprise, because I assumed I would simply be shunned as a center of abomination and disease and pestilence, right? That's Crowley's phrase for the commenters. Uh, I have been invited by a couple of OTO groups to come in and you know just talk and do do seminars. Um, so you know, a lot of his current followers are much more. Um, open-minded than uh, maybe some of the more traditionalists to the extent you can be traditional about something that just started last century that's quite refreshing actually to, to hear because you know we often i mean mark and i talk about this a lot we, we often think that you know groups like the ato or you know other similar groups um you know there's there's this move to kind of clutch onto the um older ways i suppose but we're at really for this these kinds of traditions to survive they need to adapt and modernize and you know uh, um really you know look at the world around them and you know figure out how to interact with that world 
Well, I think that's the important truth to any degree of initiation uh, is that you shouldn't join a group where they've already picked one person and say, well, that's the high watermark. It's never going to get better. Um, you know, I can look at any fourth way group in the world from some that are the best to some that are it's almost like Gurdji worshippers. But if you even suggest, well, will there ever be another teacher that can do this? You know, you, people will look at you in shocked silence. Um, you know, you, you blasphemed in some way. Uh, as long as you always think there can't be someone better than, that there is a top dog, um, then it's a group that can't live. Now, in the temple set, you would, you, could, you would not find someone that wouldn't have anything other than admiration for Michael Aquino. But you would also say, oh, other people in the temple have, had, have held his rank of initiation, and we expect this will continue. And maybe with my own work, I can get there. Um, we shouldn't take our teachers and make them inaccessible. We should take our teachers and say, wow, this teaching is really good. The best way I can honor it is to transform myself into an effective, potent, powerful person and then bring new fire to the world. Um, although uh, the book of the law also suggests that that's possible. Um, in one of those sections, it doesn't get quoted a lot. Yeah, um, so we've discussed the left and right hand path a bit, and uh, obviously I, I understand this is a bit of a broad question, but how does uh, the book of the law in your in your analysis of it uh, kind of relate to the left and right hand path? Uh, I find the book of the law to be significant in the following ways. Number one, um, I think it's really important that Crowley did not offer a mystical system that is plugged into uh, an existing system. That is amazing. Uh, we could look at every Christian mystic uh, from your 33 to your 2022, and they plug their stuff into an existing system. He has a system that does not privilege the East or the West, that doesn't privilege if you read German idealism or you've never read philosophy at all. And he had it at the center of the world because Cairo is the center of the world. He returned to the notion that there was something in Egyptian thought that's a thing of value. And the Egyptians are largely the people that did the best job of incorporating magic into their philosophy. They didn't see it as aberrant. They didn't see it as childish. They didn't see it as simply a way to serve the gods. Uh, Crowley also, the Book of the Law, um, does not uh, point out any sex, any gender or any gender orientation or any kind of sexuality as being more important. It does not say that men or women are more important. Now, some aspects, some fundamental groups have some thought on that, but the Book of the Law doesn't. And what's important, the test above tests here is this action, which was three days of receiving something, which he even, he even lost the book, the law, for about two years. Just, you know, found it one day when he was getting ready to go on a skiing trip. Produced such a huge effect, not only in him, but in everyone that it touches. The test is a pragmatic test. Anybody can channel a text. There are some New Age groups here in Austin. They get channel texts every week 
on a reliable schedule. I think it's, you know, Friday night, about eight o'clock. Uh, the people from, you know, some star group contact them. It doesn't change anybody. The book of the law does actually produce change. And you will meet people who read it and are like, I don't even know what this is about. But man, I got to find out something more. Um, it has that slice of true otherness, that moment of the spiritual that is not tied down to the workaday world. And as a consequence, everything that came afterward is different. Um, even though Crowley didn't work out his theories of aeons and so on and so forth, the much later, it's like this moment where, ah, everything's going to happen differently. And the last, well, I could several, the last reason the Book of the Law is tremendously interesting is what was going on in Crowley's life. Crowley had decided to stop being uh, a wastrel. He had married. He was going to go back to England and settle down. He had achieved the highest grade he could in the Golden Dawn. Um, he had had his whole little occult adventure. And what does he do? For his sweetheart, for his wife, on spring equinox, she says, I want to see some magic. He takes her to the Great Pyramid. He invokes silts, and she sees stuff. She actually has an experience. And this moment was someone who achieved magic, who had not gone through Golden Dawn training, and who was not interested in magic, and who had not given them their lives to magic, but just going to this very unusual place that's very much the center of the world in all kinds of ways and has this experience. This shows that there's something going on here that's far beyond the average magical experience, even the average uh, channeling experience, shall we say. So the Book of the Law really does stand out. Is, did the Book of the Law save Crowley? Probably not. But it really kept him damn well amused. And maybe that was his salvation. It certainly saved him from having a middle-class life. He then didn't go back to Britain and fit in. Um, his life got more and more daring and erratic and somehow managed to stay out of jail, which is kind of amazing. Um, so the Book of the Law has a transformative effect if you are ready and if you are willing, and then if you test the results, it's a good text. Um, so one of the things you talk about in the book is this Loki archetype. I was wondering if you could talk to that a bit. Ah, uh, Lord Loki. He was doing pretty well these days, right? Didn't he just recently have a, a television series? Yeah, TV, Loki, uh, for years, it was assumed in... Uh, most scholarly circles. His name was connected with the word lok, with fire. Uh, there was a brilliant dissertation a few years back, and don't remember the name of the person, I can probably find it, email it to you, who discovered the name means the ender. He stops things. Loki comes along and breaks things at a very particular moment. Now, this is something that we don't like in our lives. We don't actually like when catastrophe happens. But when catastrophe happens, it tests us, it gives us new tools, 
it changes everything. And the Loki archetype is this figure, this trickster, usually outside ourselves, who at some moment appears and totally disrupts our lives. And then we can decide, do I want to go back to the old normal or am I going to create a new world? Now, what is most frightening and to some extent exciting about the world right now is now billions of people have experienced the Loki archetype because their lives have been entirely disrupted. Uh, most people are going to try to go back to the old normal, but will never get back to the old normal. When you crack something open, it gets bigger. And that's Loki's job. Interesting. So, and how does this, uh, this, um, how do you apply this within the book um, to the book of the law? What, what, where do you see that kind of connection point? Crowley sought out the chaotic Loki moment. He actually has came to a place where he says, I've done everything I can do initiatorily. I've got my life planned out. Man, I've got a fortune. I'm going to go up to Scotland. I'm going to be, you know, old Scottish Laird. Got my wife. It's all great. Um, you know, my little house on Loch Ness. And he then says, but is there something more? And the universe in the form of Awise or in the form of set or in the form of however you want to describe the voice that spoke to him, even if you say it's a voice from within him, said, yes, here's something more. And it's so strange looking, you don't get it. But we're going to fill this with so much mystery, you will seek it out. And the rest of his life is seeking that mystery. Loki comes to all of us. To those of us that are brave and prepared, we can go with whatever hints he drops. Now, Crowley did not, of course, identify his speaker with Loki because he, you know, is a person of the Southern tradition. If he had been some kind of Northerner, he probably would have thought of Loki or maybe Odin in one of his uh, more evil forms, like Um The trickster will come to us. It will come to everybody that will hear this. It will come to everybody that's listening to something else when this is on. But very few people are brave enough to say, wow, I'm going to follow the clues that you left. And, and just one one thing I'm, we, I must must ask you about, because I know that you've got to, I know you will have, I, you know, I know you do have thoughts about this, is the um, the set creature, What you know, because the Egyptians, they, you know, the, um, the animal that set is supposed to represent, it's always been very mysterious, which is part of actually what as a level of uh, mystique to him, actually, I, I always felt. And uh, the Egyptians, they don't tend to... They, if they have sort of fantastical creatures, uh, chimeras, they're a chopped suey of sort of established animals, aren't they? Like, you know, the head of a crocodile and the forepaws of a leopard and the hind parts of a hippopotamus or something like that. But the, the set creature seems to sort of almost be sort of... Um, Created out of um, you know complete cloth in that respect, and uh, and there's some there's speculation exactly what it was meant to represent. Um, uh, I, I just wondered what Mr. Webb you, you think on that. Well, several Egyptological scholars. This is not this is not just me spouting my own uh, observations. Note that of course the Egyptians explained everything through natural um, metaphor when they could. Um, 
the sun is like the hawk. He's up above. He circles around. He sees everything. Uh, or the sun is like the beetle coming out of the mound, rolling the ball. Set seems to be a completely fantastic creature and seems to be, even for the Egyptians, uh, up till late antiquity, to be the symbol of stuff that stands outside of reality, that stands outside of the ordered zones. Um, Set then becomes in charge of the starry heavens at night as opposed to the well-ordered sun. He's in charge of storm. He's in charge of the desert lands where, where no one uh, travels. He, his wives, some of his wives are foreign goddesses like Anath and Asarte. Um, and so that image seems to be uh, the symbol for everything beyond. Now, by Greek and Roman times, the Greeks wanted to say uh, one of your names for Set, which is Ea, is very similar to the sound that a donkey makes. So we think that the animal is probably a donkey, um, which, of course, was a little weird because the Egyptians at that time didn't have donkeys. They're like, okay, sure, whatever. So it becomes, you know, by the time of the early Roman Empire, it's the ass-headed god. But the original set beast is incredibly mysterious. And um, in any of the, the great Egyptological studies, such as Tabelda Seth, the god of confusion, there's a lot of pages suggesting maybe they knew that, that it was chosen because it does stand for that which is outside of the ordered world. It's that alienness that can break in. Yeah, I mean, it, there's also, I mean, there's been some speculation that it might represent a sort of tapir. And uh, I mean, Egypt's part of Africa, isn't it? Just about, I mean, it's on the, the outer. Well, I mean, there, there have been various uh, animals chosen. The giraffe was one. Um, the Egyptian moramura, which is a an electric catfish, which is a which looks like the head head of set and pretty strange. You're like see a fish, touch it, and it shocks you. That's that stands out. It's pretty weird. Uh, there was from time to time an animal shows up in Egypt. Hasn't in fact showed up even this century in the little town of Ambo. It's called the Salwa, which is the Egyptian werewolf that looks like like set. But uh, no one, no one was able to catch a salwa during its latest appearance. Um, although a lot of cryptozoologists were like, "Well, this looks just like this ancient set god." Okay, well, what's the next step here? We don't know, but it's really cool. I tend to go for the fact that it's a fantastic beast, but probably barring a time machine that lets me go back to pre-dynastic Egypt, I'm never going to know. Yeah, I mean, I knew this for a considerable amount of time was regarded as a jackal but i think that the, the current thought for what it's worth is that he was in a, a species of egyptian wolf which i think was only just recently discovered that there were such there was such a creature in the first place so who knows maybe out there somewhere in that desert are the bones of some 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 set type creature who knows that might come to light at some point it was funny you say the bones because there was a historic temple of Set that actually had uh, a collection of odd bones, and it turned out to be fossilized dinosaur bones um, because they had found some of these things in the desert and said, well, oh, this set has something to do with this. Look how weird it is. So uh, there were Egyptological collections um, that had would have these black, large bones and were very disturbing to people kind of in the early part of Egyptology. 
because basically there was no idea what the hell the things were. But um, Set has always had this connection with the, with the weird. For example, Set's metal is meteorotic iron, uh, the Ba in Pet, the metal from heaven. And uh, even among, say, the relics of the king Tuntakamun, he had a dagger made out of meteorotic iron and a, uh, a giant chest jewel carved in the shape of a kefir beetle made from meteorotic glass. Anything that burst into the world was in some way connected with the magical and usually ultimately the set. Yeah, it's interesting. So talking, uh, going from, I think we'll close out with this as well, This uh, on this interview. The... On the back of the book, um, something I think will grab the attention of people. Um, you, there's a talk of another beast, uh, which is the first beast of Revelation, and your apparently your apparent uh, self-identification with this uh, this entity. Uh, could you talk to that? Um, and you know what what uh, you know what is your relationship with the the first beast of Revelation? I only do that sometimes when I'm on a Christian radio show. <laughs> Because you know, it guarantees people get, get extremely angry. The, the notion, however, from uh, the um, probably mushroom-induced trip of John Patmos was the idea that um, there was something that would come and challenge Christianity. And, and it would come in the form of these two beasts. And then we, uh, Aquina, uh, Crowley, identified himself with the first beast. And then at one point, uh, Aquino had identified himself with the second piece. It's really, really good for annoying the hell out of people. Uh, in terms of, do I think that that's um, a particularly useful <clears throat> metaphor? Maybe, maybe only at the beginning of initiation when you are breaking your ties with um, your Judeo-Christian roots. Uh, the notion, though, particularly Crowley did it the best, of being a great beast, in other words, you're living outside the law of man, um, is a powerful notion. And the notion that these that the great beast also has powers of prophecy, it can speak the future into being, that's very frightening to the establishment. So the, these are fun things to play with, but one should never confuse um, one's uh, Lego helicopter with a real helicopter. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on the show. I really appreciate you giving us so much of your time. Um, could you perhaps tell us where, if people want to find uh, you online, where would the best place be? Uh, well, I, I hang out a great deal on Facebook. It's gone web, and I will accept your messages. Um, also, writing me here of my publisher, Inner Traditions. Uh, they have a link for author, and that will be sent directly to me. Um, and I'm probably going to be, uh, in a short period of time, I'm going to be coming out with some new books. So I'm also be doing a lot of podcasts. So I think I'll be pretty visible. Excellent. So um, hopefully if you have new books, we'll have you back on the show to talk about them. Okay, can you tell us anything about the new books? Uh, the, the book I'm working on, right, the book that's about to be published, because what I'm, what I'm working on right now is called How to Be a Modern Mage. And it's a 12-month training guide to teach people right-hand path, left-hand path, whomever, um, how to be a successful magician. Uh, I decided to, as opposed to sending people to the same old, tired training books, I thought, wow, 
we have learned a lot in the last hundred years. Let me put this together. So I, I created my own training book, and I think it's going to have a huge effect. Um, in in the in the best over the long run, it's as good as Crowley's magic as far as bringing some new thought and technology to the occult world. Excellent. That sounds great. Well, thanks anyway. Uh, that was uh, it was fantastic to have you on. And uh, like I said, when that book comes out, we'll certainly have you back on. Yes, and thank you, Mr. Webb, for uh, sharing some of the um, mysteries and uh, um, intriguing concepts in the Temple of Set. Uh, very much appreciated. And we're back. So how did that uh, go with you, Mr. Satir? I very much appreciated uh, Mr. Webb's time and and sh shedding and sharing that uh, his sort of insights into that uh, the the Temple of Set because that is something I really do not uh, know a great deal about at all. So I, I feel I've, I've come a little bit closer to that. So yes, and the, the sort of the the, the and also the Egyptian mysteries. I mean, we do we do touch on that and uh, and all, and all, and its relationship also with other things like. Uh, Thelema and, uh, and and there's a whole host of things you could talk about. I mean, yes, and uh, yeah, I said it in the intro, but it's always interesting. I mean, with the Book of the Law, I mean, we've this is something we've looked at many times on the show over the years. You know, Crowley and Thelema and the Book of the Law. So it's always interesting to see that kind of thing looked at from a different perspective, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, throws, throws a different light on it. Yeah, so yeah definitely anyway so we will be back soon uh, next week i hope <laughs> um uh, but if you want to stay in touch with us do uh, look us up on instagrams at sitting now uh we're on facebook i'm gonna like i said in a previous episode i'm still looking into ways of kind of navigating that a little bit better um and but of course you can find us on twitter at sitting now and on youtube at sitting now where i promise we do have some videos coming soon um and of course you can listen to the, the shows there as well but until next time we'll see you soon